If you have your Bibles or devices, take them and open them to the book of Luke, chapter 24, and uh, verse 13. We'll get there in a few moments. Luke 24 and 13. So our culture is really good at anticipating things, but we're not so good at sustaining them. We are very good at looking forward towards something, and then when it happens, it's like we forgot. And that's especially true surrounding Easter, especially in non-liturgical churches. Um, We get really excited leading up to it, not as excited as more liturgical churches do with Lent and the season that they go through, but they certainly move towards that. But then when it's over, a lot of non-liturgical churches just move on. But I'm here to let you know, in case you forgot, he is still risen. He's still risen. He didn't go back into the grave. He is seated, even right now, at the Father's right hand in heavenly places. And we are seated uh, with him, is what the Bible says. We need to do a better job of living his resurrection life. Uh, N.T. Wright said we need to be known as resurrection people. I like that. Resurrection people. Less nostalgia and more change that comes from the revelation and the power of his atonement. The work that changes us by the cross and also the glory of his resurrection from the tomb. We need to be about that. We are actually rehearsing it, not only on Easter Sunday, but every Sunday we gather to worship him. That's why we gather on Sundays. It is the day, the first day of the week, not the Sabbath of the Jewish tradition, but the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead, and thus we gather on that day. Luke 24, 13. With all that I've just said, we want to look further at what happened on the day of his resurrection. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all things, all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. You know, it's probably an understatement to say that things hadn't turned out as they had hoped. Uh, In fact, it would probably be more accurate to say it was catastrophic for them. Um, Just the Sunday before, seven days prior, Jesus had ridden into town being hailed as the king. And within five days, he had been betrayed, arrested, scourged, crucified, died, and buried in a borrowed tomb. Things changed dramatically. To make matters worse, his body is now missing. And it's left all of his disciples perplexed. Some of them disoriented, confused, and probably quite a bit anxious. And so these two disciples are getting out of town. They're probably not the only ones that did. They are leaving 
town. We're not told exactly why. Um, perhaps they were simply going home. Frederick Beechner said that Emmaus was no place in particular, except that it was seven miles from a place that had become unbearable. We're given the name of only one of these disciples, Cleopas. You'll see it down later when we get to those verses. And while it typically is thought that he is one of two male disciples, many scholars believe that actually these two disciples were husband and wife. Cleopas, which could also possibly be Clopas, which is recorded in the Gospel of John, and his wife Mary, who stood alongside Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the foot of the cross. A lot of Marys there. Now, I'm not here to argue one way or the other whether it was two male disciples or a male and female who were disciples and also married to each other. It's not my point. It is interesting to kind of consider it. Uh, but it is interesting if they were married that as they're traveling home, they're talking about what had happened, <laughs> um, which makes a whole lot of sense to me because my wife and I have the best conversation when we're traveling on a trip. I don't know anybody else, but we look forward to the road trip because it's uninterrupted time to really talk and talk about deeper things than maybe we normally do. And maybe that's what these two are doing. But as they're walking, this stranger joins them. He overtakes them on the road and, and links up with them and begins to walk with them. And since Jesus had been the topic of their conversation, you'd think that they would have recognized him. But they didn't. They didn't. They couldn't see. I don't know if it was the grief, the disappointment. Maybe he changed clothes. I don't know. Maybe his glorified body is in such a state that of course, if it was that pronounced and glorious, they probably would have been drawn to that. Whatever it was, they didn't recognize him as Jesus. They're walking and he associates, comes right up with them and starts talking to them and they didn't know who he was. Now, I wonder how many times we do this same thing with the Lord. We go about our lives, our normal routines, we're we're going through our days, sometimes confused, somewhat disoriented occasionally. We're struggling with what's been lost, what could have been, what is, what wasn't. All of the different troubles and turmoils that we find ourselves in. And we haven't realized that all this time, Jesus has been walking right there with us. We don't see him for who he is. He's come right up into our midst, and we're completely ignorant to the fact that he's there. Look what happened next, verse 17. And he said to them, what is the conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days. What's wrong with you, man? Not only is he a stranger, he doesn't really know what's happening. Of course Jesus knew what happened. 
is what happened. Oh, the irony of it all. Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? Jesus is always asking questions. You, you might be surprised he asked questions of you if you'll listen. What things, he said. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Notice how Jesus asked them to start the conversation, even though he already knows. He does the same thing with us. He asks. He asked people when, when they wanted to be healed, what is it you want from me? Why did he do that? He knows what they want. It's obvious what they need. Why does he ask? Because he wants us to say it. Not so he can hear it, but so we can hear us. We can hear ourselves say it. We have to say some things sometimes to know what we're thinking. And so he asked this question. He's always asking questions. And their answer is really quite telling. We had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped that he was the one. I bet all of us uh, can relate to saying something like this at some time in our life. Sometimes more often than not. We had hoped for that promotion. We had hoped we'd have enough money to last the month. We had hoped that marriage would work. We had hoped it wouldn't be cancer. We had hoped she would be pregnant. We had hoped, but now we're disappointed with how things turned out. We had hoped... But now we're sad that our expectations have not been fulfilled. We had hoped, but now we're just resigned to a life we didn't sign up for. We had hoped, but now we're discouraged because our prayers have gone unanswered. Can you relate to the hopelessness that these two must have felt? We've all been there at some point or another. We might be there today. We had hoped. But I guess it's just not going to happen. What Jesus does next is really huge in my mind. Um, he listens. He listens to them. He lets them tell their story, all the pain and the sadness and the disappointment they felt about what could have been, but what wasn't. He, he doesn't interrupt them. He asks them so that they would verbalize what they were thinking. He asked them to hear them. He asked them, giving them this space. And that's what Jesus does for us also. He asks because he wants us 
to share with him. But just as important as his listening to these disciples, Jesus doesn't leave them there in their hopelessness. He doesn't let them remain in this place of disillusionment. They are in despair. They are disillusioned. They are disappointed. They are anxious. They are worried. But he doesn't leave them there. While listening to them, he also pushes them beyond that place. He doesn't leave them there. A lot of times in our lives, we, when we find ourselves hopeless, we move to two extremes of handling this disappointment. One extreme or the other. On one hand, we might just refuse to bring it up at all. Might refuse to take that disappointment to Jesus in the first place, thinking, well, he probably doesn't need to hear that. And so we never verbalize what it is he asked of us. We never say it. But at the other extreme, a lot of us are so comfortable in our disappointment that we never leave it. We refuse to receive his help. We refuse his way out. We, we tend to just stay in it. In my many years of pastoring, I've seen both extremes. I've seen both extremes in my own life. At different points when I wouldn't bring it up and at another point when I wanted to hang on to it for dear life. People who don't see God as father full of mercy and grace and it keeps them from coming to him in the first place. They don't approach, they don't come home, they don't draw near and they're not willing to be honest with him and where they really are and they're not willing to receive what he might do to change their circumstances. So they just hold back But I've also seen people who are more comfortable in their disappointment or bondage than they are in God's purpose and freedom. And that's sad. That seems strange that anyone would stay in a place of disappointment. But I see it all the time. Because they don't really want the discomfort and pain. That's true. But it has become so familiar to them so ingrained in them, so much a part of who they are, they don't know how to let it go. They don't know how to receive his help. And it's just easier to hang on to the disappointment or the bondage than it is to live in faith. Because if you haven't been living in faith, that can be a scary proposition. And so they remain disappointed. They remain in bondage. They remain held back. They don't approach him. They stay where they are because at least it's something they know. When we willfully cling to our sadness and to our rejection and to our bitterness and to our resentment and disappointment, it becomes bondage. The Bible calls it A stronghold, a stronghold that erects in your life. And now 
you are a prisoner to it. It's become toxic, and it has made for you a way of chronic spiritual conditioning. Everything is seen through that lens. Everything is broken. Everything is through disappointment or sadness or rejection or fear or anxiety. Those things Jesus came to deal with. I don't believe it's how God wants us to live in this stronghold of disappointment. We had hoped. We had hoped it would be different. While Jesus let these two disciples communicate their disappointment, he didn't leave them there. He didn't listen to their going on about it and say, well, it's been nice seeing you. Split. I'm glad I saw who they really are. I don't really want them following me anyway. No. He didn't come to judge them. He came to heal them. He didn't came to leave them in their disappointment. Yes, he'll listen to it. Yes, he'll let you process. But he wants you free from it. What did he do? Well, he opened up the scripture, the Bible says, and he began to give them new revelation. He began to reprogram the way they had understood what had been told them their whole lives. And later, they would admit that what he was saying caused their hearts to burn within them. And that is a powerful illustration. When the words of God and the presence of God and the revelation of God begins to pierce your stronghold and then your heart starts burning within you, you know that's a work of the Holy Spirit. More of it needs to happen today, even in our midst. The Spirit of God would come and reorient us and not leave us where we are and pull us out of that place is one of the greatest miracles we can experience. He caused their hearts to burn within them. His words had ignited a flame. They began to see things differently. He was shifting the way they saw it, their paradigm, their outlook, and they were reorienting their focus around these words from a stranger. And it came it, it, it made them come alive again. You know, while we're certainly aware, while they were certainly aware of the facts of what had happened this last week, they hadn't been captured by the truth. My wife always says, your set of facts are not always the truth. She says it better than I do, but you know that already. <clears throat> They, were, they had their set of facts. They, they had been with him. They knew the facts of what had happened, but they didn't know the truth. And therefore, they were interpreting all that had happened wrongly. I want to tell you something. You can have your facts, and they can even be biblical facts. But if you're not interpreting through the, what the Spirit of God is saying then you can be wrong and on the wrong side of history. That's where the Pharisees were. They had their facts straight. And Jesus said they were like dead men's bones in a tomb 
that was whitewashed for other people to see. You can have your facts straight, but we want the truth, not the facts. And so they were taking their facts and they were interpreting all that they had seen based off of a set of facts and not the truth. They had seen the cross as disproof of their redemption. When in fact, it was the confirmation of it. They had seen his crucifixion as an indicator that they would continue to be oppressed by evil forces. But in fact, it was the way evil would be defeated once and for all. They were looking at the same thing, but not seeing the truth of what God was doing. The very thing that made Jesus a disappointment in their eyes was what made him a victorious savior for their life. And as N.T. Wright said, this was, after all, how the exile was designed to end, how sins were to be forgiven, and how the kingdom was to come. This was what God's light and truth looked like, coming unexpectedly to lead his people back into his presence. Skip down to verse 28. See what happens next. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly, their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour. And they returned to Jerusalem. I bet the conversation was a whole lot different going back. Man, I love the resurrected Jesus. He is so cool. I know that's not a very powerful word, but my vocabulary is limited. He is just the coolest. I am trying not to quote Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights right now. <clears throat> the resurrected Jesus is the coolest. That's all I have to say. Think about it. He spends most of the day, the very day that he's been raised from the dead, mind you. Doesn't he have more important things to be doing? He spends the majority of this day walking with two unbelieving disciples. Walking. I mean, if I was Jesus, I'm a little impatient. I would have probably just said, here I am. Go on, get out of here. But no, he walks and he lets them process and he listens. Wah, wah, wah. He gives all the time to them in the world on the day he was raised from the dead. Jesus is so cool. And then he starts redirecting and reprogramming and saying, guys, you got it all wrong. You're kind of being foolish here. Let me show you what really is the truth. You got your facts. I'll tell you the truth. And then, 
one of my favorite things he does is he just seems to say, well, see ya, as they're going into their house. And just like he's going to walk on. Now, what is that all about? I, it's just hilarious to me. I really think he wanted to see what they would do. He wanted to see if they would initiate. He wanted to see, he wanted to put the ball back in their court. He'll do it to you too, by the way. And then once inside, he assumes the role of host. And he takes bread and blesses it as he breaks it. And then he gives it to them. And their eyes are finally opened. And they see him for who he really is. And poof! He's gone. N.T. Wright likes to make the comparison of this moment in this scene as a moment in the garden. Interesting. A moment in the garden when Eve took the forbidden fruit and gave it to Adam. And they both ate of it. And Genesis 3.7 says... Then their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked. (laughs) But compare Luke's story with the one in Genesis, and you realize that things have now been reversed. After Jesus revealed the truth of Scripture, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, not to their own nakedness but to his covering. What a parallel. And of course, the most breathtaking comparison is the one you knew I was going to go to. It's between this moment and the night on which Jesus was betrayed, where he instituted the Lord's Supper, and it has created for us a rhythm that we see throughout Scripture of taking bread, of breaking and blessing it, and then giving it to us. We see it throughout Scripture, and every time we gather at the table, we rehearse its truth. I want you to realize as we conclude this morning that in our walk of life, Jesus has come alongside. We may not realize it, we may not recognize him, but he is there. He is there walking with his disciples. He is there to reorient and redirect and reveal the truth regardless of your facts. And I want you to remember that he's ready to listen to you. He doesn't rush through it, not like Pastor Chris. He gives you time to process, to hear your pain. He gives you room. But he doesn't leave you there. He is there to address your disappointment where what you had hoped for is replaced by what he has purposed. Where your heart begins to burn and you're set free from disappointment and sadness and sorrow and despair and brokenness, where strongholds fall, and freedom is gained, and eyes are opened, and Jesus is there. May the resurrected Jesus enter our journey this morning.
Amen. This is my wife, if you don't know her. And um, she has great things to say. My dad, um, John Duke, for those of you that didn't know him, he did an entire series on if you believe the wrong things about God, your experiences will seem to prove those lies to you. Mm. And we think that we need to change the experience so that we can change what we believe. But in reality, we have to receive the right belief in order to see and receive the circumstances in a different way. That's really good. Um, I was really struck um, with what you were saying around we had hoped and all the examples that you used. Um, when we say that about things in our lives, we had hoped. It is a statement of fact that is not true. It feels right. And we can get sympathy from that. Mm -hmm. and, and we can have a whole list of why we think that's true. Yeah. But in order to receive all the amazing things that Chris talked about today that came from having their eyes opened and their hearts stirred by the presence of the Lord, they had to be willing to receive hope that was different than what they had hoped for. Mm, that's right. And so when I pray for us today, I want to pray a prayer of relinquishment where we give back to God what we had hoped for. And we are honest about being disappointed or discouraged or disillusioned or even dissatisfied so that we can then receive what the truth is about who he is and what he is providing for us in this moment. It's really good. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do say yes to you as Justin prayed first thing this morning. We don't want to cling to our disappointment or to our point of view or to our perspective on all that has happened to us or to the people that we love or the things that we care about. It's true. We want to release all of that to you, honestly telling you our hopes, our fears, our anger, so that you can tell us the truth. You are the truth, mm -hmm. and when we open our hearts to you, that is what you sow there. That's right. And truth will weed out all the lies. That's right. Truth will come in and take up residence. And then lies of the enemy that have been whispered to us that we have chosen to believe mm. can be uprooted and replaced with what is real and what is full of hope that cannot disappoint. Yes, Lord. So, Father, we do invite you into our thoughts into our perspective of our own experiences. And we say that your truth is the greatest reality. 
We will not allow our circumstances, our experiences to lie to us anymore. We will receive who you are and what you say as the guiding truth and boundary of our lives. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You are the truth, like Donna prayed. You're the way, the truth, and the life. Forgive us for creating our own paths and clinging to our own facts and trying to muster together some sort of life. You're the answer for all that we need. Direction. Truthfulness. Living. I pray, Lord, that these words and what your spirit is saying would be received in our hearts. May each of us, everyone here, everyone that's listening in this place, examine our own hearts and reflect on what it is that we have believed that you want to address. What it is that we've been disappointed by, found ourselves hoping for, and now it's not going to happen, or it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Lord, open our eyes to see you standing right in our midst, wanting to hear us, but also wanting to change us. And help us, Lord, have that burning in our hearts, deep within us, that is the greater passion than anything else in our lives. The greater motivation, it is what we live our lives for, what is burning inside of us. May the Holy Spirit pierce our strongholds. May he bust them wide open and may they fall before the living God who brings hope and life and peace and purpose. We submit to you now, Holy Spirit, do in us the work that needs to be done. Let's stand together. As we're singing this song, leaders will be at the front to pray with you if you are in need of prayer. As if, you're, if you want someone to stand with you, then respond to the Lord. Um, invite him in and see what he'll say to you. Let's sing.